Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard, inviting you again to search the Scriptures with me as I continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. Our point in focusing on the Kingdom is simply this. Jesus was a preacher of the Gospel of the Kingdom. In order to understand Jesus and have a relationship with Him through understanding His mind and sharing His Spirit, it's essential that we understand what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. Jesus opened his ministry by declaring to the public that they should repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. For anyone who's not familiar with the New Testament, it's a very simple matter to establish the fact that Jesus centered the whole of his teaching around the concept of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is Jesus' master phrase. The kingdom of God is the phrase in which the genius of the Christian faith is contained. To understand Jesus, you must understand his kingdom. Indeed, in order to respond to his first command, that we're to repent and believe in the kingdom, it's essential for intelligent belief to know what the kingdom of God was. You can't repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom if you don't know what the kingdom of God is. It makes no sense at all to try to present Jesus and his message without a clear definition of the kingdom. I have to tell you that the kingdom of God was a very well-known phrase amongst Jesus' compatriots. When he came into Galilee announcing the kingdom of God and urging his fellow countrymen to believe that it was coming soon, that it was on the horizon, and incidentally Jesus did not say the kingdom of God had come, he said that it was coming in the future. It was near, but not here. When he announced the kingdom of God, his audience knew very well what that meant. The kingdom of God was about as common a phrase in first century Palestine as the Constitution of America would be today, or the Declaration of Independence, or the Tower of London, or the monarchy in England. The kingdom of God indeed was the national hope of Israel. It would be equivalent in some sense to such common phrases and ideas in America as Uncle Sam or the Star-Spangled Banner. Everyone with a modicum of religious education and instruction knew what the kingdom of God was. But today, 2,000 years later, something strange has happened. Firstly, it's possible to listen to a mass of teaching about Jesus and the gospel without hearing a word about the kingdom. Secondly, if we do hear the kingdom of God mentioned occasionally, the term kingdom of God is being used in a sense different from the sense which Jesus gave to that phrase. Now, it's not hard to see that if you drop the idea of the kingdom entirely, or if you reinterpret it with a different meaning from its original meaning in the Bible, you've done a tremendous disservice to Jesus. Now, I'm sure you must realize that it's possible to speak about Jesus and yet to omit entirely his central teaching of the kingdom. At that point, you have to ask whether the real Jesus has been suppressed and another Jesus has been promoted in his place. If we substitute our own modern definitions for biblical words, we alter the documents. That should be very plain. The only way to get at the real meaning of what Jesus said is to understand him in his context. So what did Jesus mean by his central concept, the kingdom of God? The only fair way to answer that question is to look into the background of Jesus. 
And if we do that, of course, we will have to turn to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the Bible that Jesus had, the Bible on which Jesus was trained and reared, the Bible which was read to Jesus as a child, and the Bible which Jesus said he came not to destroy, Matthew 5, verse 17. What then did the kingdom of God mean according to the Hebrew Bible, that repository of divine information, inspired information which Jesus, along with his compatriots, believed came directly from God? If you will turn to the second chapter of the book of Daniel, and we know that the book of Daniel was widely read at the time when Jesus began to preach his gospel about the kingdom. If you'll turn to that second chapter of the book of Daniel, you'll find there a description of four world regimes or kingdoms followed by a fifth kingdom. There are four beast-like kingdoms described there, one after the other. But at the end of their rule, the end of their dominion, a fifth kingdom appears. And that fifth kingdom is described as the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's most important to point out that that kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom in heaven, removed from this earth. It's a divine kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, which comes to the earth and supersedes the preceding four beastly regimes. The fifth kingdom is not an abstract kingdom. It's not a kingdom in your heart. It's a real territorial kingdom superseding the kingdoms which precede it, and it's called the kingdom of heaven. Now, to demonstrate from a parallel passage in the book of Daniel that that kingdom is as much earthbound and related to this planet as the other kingdoms, we have only to turn to the seventh chapter of Daniel. In the seventh chapter of Daniel, we have a great deal said about the coming kingdom, the kingdom of heaven as described in Daniel 2, verse 44. According to Daniel chapter 7 and verses 17 and 18, these great beasts which appear in a second vision here in Daniel 7, these four great beasts represent four kings or kingdoms, because king and kingdom interchange in the book of Daniel, four kingdoms or empires which are going to rise from the earth. But the time is going to come in verse 18 when the saints of the Most High will take over the kingdom and possess it forever. That, of course, then is the kingdom of heaven, described in the earlier chapter in Daniel 2. The evidence of chapter 2 of Daniel and the evidence of chapter 7 of Daniel is unmistakably clear. In both visions, worldly, beast-like, pagan kingdoms are going to be superseded by and replaced by what is called the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom from heaven, a kingdom to be in the hands of the saints of the Most High. Daniel 7, verse 18. And then in verse 22 of that same chapter 7 of Daniel, we read that a decision was given in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time arrived that the saints possessed the kingdom. And in verse 23, we have further information confirming the fact of the four kingdoms, the four pagan kingdoms, and the fifth saintly kingdom which supersedes it. In verse 23 of Daniel 7 we read this, The fourth beast is going to be a fourth kingdom upon the earth, and it will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour all the earth and trample it and crush it. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings who will arise, and another will arise after them. He'll be different from the first ones, 
and three kings will be laid low by him. And he will speak words against the highest, and will wear out the saints of the Most High, and he'll think to change seasons and law, and the saints will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit, and his dominion will be taken away, and be utterly destroyed and annihilated. And then the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, that's to say on the earth, will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey them. Daniel 7, verse 27. Now the picture is elaborated a little bit here, and more detail is given than we received in Daniel 2. In Daniel 2 we learned of four beast-like kingdoms to be superseded and replaced by the kingdom of heaven. In Daniel 7, we are treated to some more detail about the final stage of the beast kingdoms. The fourth or last of the beast kingdoms is going to be comprised of ten individual rulers, and there will in fact be an eleventh ruler, and the vision concentrates on him. He's the one who's going to speak words against the Most High. He's going to be in opposition to God. He's known otherwise in the Scripture as the final Antichrist, but when he comes to his end, when he's destroyed, then the kingdom under the whole heaven is given to the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey them. Daniel 7 and verse 27. The picture is very clear. Once again we see the fifth kingdom being the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom from heaven. Notice that it's to function under the heaven, and therefore it's going to function on this earth, on this planet. The book of Daniel, chapter 2 and chapter 7, provides us with a very clear picture of world history. There are four beast-like empires, and then comes the kingdom of heaven as the fifth empire. It's going to function on the earth, it will be in the hands of the saints, God's people, and it will last forever. That, I have to tell you, is what the Bible means by the kingdom of God. It's an empire on this earth, a territorial empire, to be established by the saints, and by Jesus, of course, as the leader of those saints, at the second coming of Jesus, when the Antichrist, that eleventh horn of the fourth kingdom, is finally destroyed, and the kingdom of God, in the hands of the saints and of Jesus, takes charge of the world in perpetuity. There's a mass of material in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, confirming our view of the kingdom of God as a territorial empire to be in the hands of the Messiah and the saints. We would urge our audiences to ponder those great chapters of Daniel, chapter 2 and chapter 7, before embarking on a study of the teaching of Jesus. It really is impossible to understand the gospel as Jesus preached it unless we are familiar with the background out of which Jesus worked. Remember that he came to confirm the promises made to the forefathers. Romans 15, verse 8. Remember, too, that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham and to the other saints of the Old Testament. And Daniel's idea of the kingdom is also Jesus' idea of the kingdom. Jesus did not reject the Hebrew Bible. He could not have rejected the Hebrew Bible without rejecting the fundamental premise of all his teachings namely that he did not come to destroy the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. With that in mind, it will be easy to see 
that God has a plan in progress in the world. God's plan is to establish sound and sane government by establishing the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, and those two terms are interchangeable, by establishing and setting up the kingdom of God on this earth at the second coming. God's promise is that the world is going to have peace, and it's going to have peace on a permanent basis when Jesus returns to function as the Prince of Peace. We might say that the sum total of the Bible story could be encapsulated like this. The Bible is God's promise that God's people will be in power in God's place. Now, the promise is the promise of the kingdom. God's people are the saints of all the ages, headed by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and they're going to be in power, controlling the kingdom of God in God's place, which is the renewed earth of the future. Jesus said it beautifully, Blessed are the meek, those are God's people, they're going to have the kingdom as their permanent inheritance. They're going to be in God's place, exercising God's power. Another way of summarizing the Bible story would be this. God's sons, who are the seed of Abraham, are going to be in royal session on the soil of the kingdom of God. God's promise of the kingdom, in other words, is based on the promise made to Abraham that his seed would be in possession of power in the kingdom of God, in God's place on the earth. I've written a book on the kingdom of God, which I'd like to offer to you for your private Bible study at home, or you may like to request a tape of the program you've been listening to. Meanwhile, join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.